Welcome to this Legal Talk Network podcast as Lex Mundi presents In-House Legal, the show about everything in-house. Hot topics, legal trends, everything important to corporate counsel. Welcome as Lex Mundi presents In-House Legal. I'm your host, Tim Corcoran, with Hubbard One, a division of Thomson Reuters. At Hubbard One, we provide marketing and business development tools and services to law firms serving the corporate counsel community. Now, as an expert in law firms and corporate counsel relationships, I'm very pleased to partner with Lex Mundy and host In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. Each month, Lex Mundy presents In-House Legal, focusing on you and what's important to you as in-house counsel. We take you inside the corporate legal department. Today's topic is where to sue and not be sued, surviving litigation. And with us today is Joe Sepulcher, partner with Lita Kirk & Co., Lex Mundy's member firm for Belgium. Joe specializes in international contract law as well as international litigation and arbitration. A dual Canadian-Belgian national, his bicultural education and experience in firms in England, the U.S., and Belgium have brought him to focus his practice on international contracts, arbitration, and dispute resolution. Joe has wide experience in pleading before ordinary courts and arbitration panels, both in Belgium and abroad. Joe is a current chair of the Lex Mundi Litigation, Arbitration, and Dispute Resolution Committee. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Tim. Glad to be here. Now, also joining us today is Carla Swansburg, Senior Counsel with RBC Law Group. Carla manages complex litigation involving Royal Bank Financial Group and many of its subsidiaries throughout the world, including RBC's network of international wealth management offices throughout the U.S., Europe, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Carla handles commercial claims and class actions relating to fraud, banking, securities, and breach of trust, among other matters. She frequently leads or supports internal investigations, including multi-jurisdictional matters, and advises business partners on litigation risks. Carla is the past president of the Ontario chapter of the Association of Corporate Counsel. Well, thank you for joining us, Carla. Thank you, Tim. So today we're talking about the nuances of litigation and what in-house counsel should know in order to survive litigation. Let's jump into discussing how to sue, whether you have a choice, and why in-house counsel should care. Carla, is in-house counsel, when might a private litigant have the opportunity to choose a forum? Well, as a multi-jurisdictional company, we are often faced with this issue. Um, clearly, if we're the ones deciding to sue for recovery or for damages, we can often choose a forum based on not only where our offices are, but where our opponent or our target company or individuals are. But in fact, I think in-house counsel should also consider that if they are being sued, there are often still opportunities to have some control over where that forum is. A couple of examples would be where um, if the forum in which you're sued is only one possibility, you may consider trying to move the forum based on having another more appropriate forum, another court that will take jurisdiction, or for example, you may be able to find that there's a way to bring the matter before some sort of alternative dispute resolution process in another jurisdiction. We've had situations, for example, where um, our opponents sued us in several jurisdictions in order to preserve limitation periods. So they issued claims at the same time in three different jurisdictions. And upon learning of that, we took the opportunity essentially for some reverse forum shopping by responding to the pleadings in the jurisdiction that we felt would be the most favorable. So there are often situations where you can actually have some control, even if you're sued in a jurisdiction that you may or may not want to be in. You know, as a defendant... Um this is Joe speaking as a lawyer. As a defendant, you may sometimes want to uh, take the initiative of suing first. And uh, lawyers have for a long time borrowed the um, preemptive strike technique of army generals by um, advising their clients to take action 
before being sued in some foreign jurisdiction didn't want to, you would bring the jurisdiction, you would bring the claim before um, before your own courts or courts that you would choose. And there used to be an expression for that. That was a Belgian torpedo. Um, and that meant mainly in patent infringement cases that you would, when you knew that an infringement case would be brought against you in a foreign ju- jurisdiction, you would take the initiative and start a claim before your own courts or courts that you liked or courts that you knew were very slow and unreliable and would drag the matter forward for years and years. Um, and you would ask that court for a declarative judgment. Um, that has more or less disappeared uh, in Europe in disputes between European parties, but it's still a very, very useful tool in, um, in international litigation. Well, that's very interesting. Let's talk more about this. Let's discuss some other factors that influence the choice of jurisdiction. So do local customs and procedural laws play a role? Are there cultural factors in play? Joe, with your international experience, what are your thoughts? Well, what I've seen from my clients, whether Belgian clients or foreign clients, it is it's probably the main factor um, because there are huge differences, not only in the culture, but also on the procedures. And those can have a, a huge impact on the success of legal action, on the cost of legal action, and how much of a toll that legal action proceedings put on the parties and on management. Um, a, a few examples. Um, the, the distinction between civil law and common law is well known. Um, one often says that um, proceedings in civil law are um, inquisitorial, which means that the judge is really um, leading the uh, leading the game and directing the parties. Whereas in the common law system, and even more so in the USA. Um, the proceedings are adversarial, which means that it's really up to the parties to to organize the game and to um, question the witnesses and to uh, to 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 uh, bring to the courts not only the facts but also the legal issues. And that basic difference between the two legal systems has a number of very important consequences. Discovery. In common law countries, and even more so in the USA, um, discovery is really a major part of legal proceedings. That brings huge costs and uh, will, will cause parties to invest substantially in legal teams and finding out information from the other side. There's very much, very little of that in civil law countries, um, and 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 parties then just almost jump directly to uh, arguing the case with the documentary evidence that they have. Witness uh, depositions. Um, Courts seldom rely, don't often rely on witness depositions in civil law countries, Um, whereas witnesses will be a major feature in, uh, in, in common law countries. In common law countries, the parties will cross examine the witnesses. In civil law countries, the witnesses protected, as it were, and, and it's the judge who asks the questions to witnesses. So there's a lot more than you can get from a witness in common law countries than in civil law countries. Um, in terms of um, 
of, of what kind of evidence you can submit, um, terms of whether you can, um, in civil law countries, if you want to obtain uh, documents that are in the possession of the other party, you must file a special application to the court identifying uh, the document that you want, not a class of document, but really the document you want. And tell the court why you want it and why it may be decisive to the whole case. Um, last if not least, uh, what you explain to the court. In civil law countries, just give the, the facts to the court, and the court is supposed to know the law. Now, of course, you do argue at law, you do explain the law to the court, but the judge will investigate the law on his own motion, um, whereas in common law countries, the rule, I believe, is that you give to the court the facts and the law, and the court does little research beyond what the uh, parties have argued before the court. Carla, do you agree? Yes, absolutely. And I would echo some of those comments and add that, for example, as you know, as in-house counsel, we often have cases that we know will be decided on the documents. But then we also have cases that we know may well be decided based purely on the credibility of witnesses. And in those cases, it's important to try and control, if you can, whether or not those witnesses get to tell their story or lawyers get to tell their story. Similarly, if your case is purely a black-letter law case and the facts may not be perfect for you, but the law itself is quite clear, then and that's a situation where, you know, you might want to avoid the common law system if you have the opportunity to do so. The other things that I would add would be that there are situations, for example, often if you're dealing with multinationals and companies in different jurisdictions or parties in different jurisdictions, where you need to actually get evidence from a foreign party. And there are some countries, such as France, for example, that take their blocking statutes quite seriously. And there can be a real hurdle to trying to get helpful evidence or unhelpful evidence, frankly, out of that jurisdiction for the purposes of foreign litigation. And as an in-house person, the only other thing that I would add is that in a lot of civil law jurisdictions, there is not a recognition of privilege for in-house lawyers. So for those of us who have a significant stake in that issue, in situations where you don't actually want to have to waive privilege for in-house counsel's work, that again could be a consideration. One major feature that distinguishes uh, common law countries, and particularly the U.S., from civil law countries is the, the availability of jury trial in civil and commercial disputes. Uh, and that, that is certainly something that frightens many European parties when they're facing litigation uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, it is being confronted not with professional judges, but with ordinary people sitting as a jury. Yes, and I'm based in Canada where we do have jury trials, but they're primarily reserved for criminal cases and we don't do a lot of commercial cases before juries. And frankly, it is often a factor, even as between Canada and the U.S., where we do want to avoid juries in commercial cases. Well, quite a lot to consider there. Should in-house counsel also consider the ultimate enforceability of a judgment? Is that still an international issue? That is still an issue. And again, for us, um, we try and set up a lot of our arrangements internationally so that we consider these issues at the outset as opposed to when there's litigation. But certainly if we are suing to recover uh, in a credit situation or in a loan loss or in another situation where we're suing for damages, um, certainly if we are suing, we will 
absolutely look to see where assets are located. There are some jurisdictions that are simply much simpler to enforce foreign judgments against assets, but where the assets are can be a very key consideration because we've all seen situations where you sue or you are sued or you recover funds, but there just aren't any assets to attach in the jurisdiction where you have the judgment, and it can be extremely costly, even if you're successful, to be able to enforce that judgment somewhere else. I believe, Joe, though, that there are some developments that might change that ultimately. Well, quite a few. And um, enforceability is also a concern, not only at the time when you start litigation, but um, before that, when you draft your contract or when you agree on litigation uh, as opposed to arbitration. Um, today, generally speaking, it is, in most countries, easier to um, to enforce an arbitral award because the New York Convention 1958 has done that wonderful job of rendering arbitral awards enforceable more or less worldwide with a limited number of cases and grounds on which enforcement can be resisted. There is no such instrument yet uh, regarding court judgments, but that is coming. Um, I've been saying that for five years, but in uh, in 2005, the Hague Convention um, passed a new treaty or convention on choice of court agreements that will, when it is ratified, and that could be this year or next year or soon anyway, when it is ratified, that will make it, that will make um, choice of court agreements um, enforceable before courts of uh, not only the chosen countries, but also the other countries, but it will make the ensuing judgment also enforceable except under a number of limited grounds. So that could pretty much change the picture in a year or two. Um, could be sooner, could be later. It has been signed by the USA, by the European Commission. It has yet to be ratified by the uh, uh, US Congress and European Parliament, but that is um, probably coming soon. Sounds like something we should monitor closely. We're going to take a quick break, so stay tuned for more about surviving litigation. In-house legal from Lex Mundi takes you inside the corporate legal department. Get the inside story on the latest issues, legal trends, and more. Where do you turn when you face legal issues halfway around the world? Lex Mundi, the world's leading association of independent law firms. Lex Mundi's worldwide network of 160 premier law firms in more than 100 countries provides the local market knowledge and on-the-ground experience you can trust as your business and legal needs transcend borders. Regionally, nationally, and around the world, Lex Mundi offers unlimited solutions to help you meet the challenges of doing business globally. To locate a Lex Mundi member firm, visit www.lexmundi.com. That's L-E-X. M-U-N-D-I dot com. Welcome back to In-House Legal, presented by Lex Mundi. I'm your host, Tim Corcoran. Today, we are discussing where to sue and not be sued. Before the break, we were discussing some of the factors that influence litigation. Let's continue with that discussion. Let's turn to costs and fee shifting. Which side bears responsibility and are there significant differences by jurisdiction? Carla, let's turn to you first. Yes, as corporate counsel, costs are, of course, always an issue on the radar screen, and there are a couple of different factors at play. One, um, and the sort of the easiest one, is is pure and simple 
rates. It's, it's not a secret that council in jurisdictions like London and certain U.S. jurisdictions simply have higher hourly rates than other jurisdictions. And that can be a significant factor in a large piece of litigation. But more importantly, I think for our discussion today is an issue about the jurisdictional differences. And they are significant. In Canada, for example, where I am based, we have um, costs follow the cause rules, also known as loser pay rules, where when you commence a motion or a proceeding or an action and you lose, um, the losing party generally has to indemnify a certain percentage or, or an amount of the successful party's cost. So that is a factor. In the U.S., for example, generally speaking, and of course there are exceptions, each party bears its own costs. In the U.K., um, the costs are very high to begin with, and the successful party can, in fact, recover a significant amount of its cost from the other side. So in jurisdictions like that, where you are commencing litigation or engaging in litigation, you have to consider not only the cost of the litigation, the cost of any damages, awards, or penalties, but you have to consider the possibility that you may well have to indemnify the successful party, which can add a significant amount. From my experience, I have yet to... Uh to see one client recover his litigation costs fully. Um, and, and I often tell clients when they're considering lit litigation that litigation is often a lose-lose perspective, uh, and you only go to litigation if there is no reasonable settlement that can be found. Um, I have accompanied clients in litigation in England uh, or in the U.S., say, or on the European continent, and never, never, never has the client, even when he was a clear winner in the case, fully recovered his costs. Because it's not only a question of legal costs, it's, only a, it's also a question of how much time management at the client is spending on the case. And that has a cost, too. And when you add up the total cost at the end, um, even the winner, at, to a certain degree, is a loser. And even if he gets back a substantial part of his cost back. Always something to consider, the opportunity cost of spending time pursuing or defending in litigation. Is there ever a concern about the reliability of the chosen court, Carla? That is an interesting question. It's not often an issue, but when it is an issue, it's a very significant one. And there are situations, for example, thankfully rare, where there is corruption, for example, or where there is a known lack of neutrality for domestic litigants in a court. Um, home field advantage should never be underestimated for any number of reasons. But one example I've seen, not so much in the banking industry where I work, but where there's an industry considered of national or state importance um, for a particular jurisdiction, you don't want to be the litigant who's action somehow imperils that industry or that issue, um, it can be significant in some jurisdictions where there, for example, the, the locals rely heavily on one particular industry or organization. You don't want to challenge that in a court where there's likely to be hostility or a lack of neutrality. So as I said, well, it's not often an issue. It's one where uh, there can be dramatic consequences. Yes, it's not only a question of neutrality and corruption, I think. Uh, my main concern, and that is for certain not all, but certain jurisdiction in the European Union or in neighboring countries is the um, the competence of the court, um, the um, the level of sophistication that a judge can 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 reach, and whether a judge is is capable of following an extremely complex dispute and rendering a judgment that will be that might not satisfy the parties, but at least will be convincing and will be clear. And there's also the issue um, that can be dramatic in certain countries of 
time. Uh, in, in, in some countries, you might need uh, five to six years to get through a case, um, and that is certainly the, co- the case of my country, Belgium, um, where the courts are notoriously slow. Uh, so corruption is one factor, uh, the absence of neutrality, of course, but speed, efficiency, and a certain degree of sophistication and capability of understanding international disputes or disputes between parties and different parties, that can be a very important factor, too. Well, it sounds like no matter what the country, no matter what your sport, it's, it's important to monitor closely the benefits or disadvantages of the home field. So, Joe and Carla, as we come to a close, are there other things that we should keep in mind as in-house counsel in order to survive litigation? Joe, let's turn to you. You know, there are quite a few practical considerations um, that, 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 that you should look into uh, before you make your choice. Um, the, the very first one, I'd say, is if you choose a certain court, what law is that court going to apply? And is that court, will it be prepared to apply the law that the parties in their contract have designated as the governing law? Um, and will the courts be willing to go through the, 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 the work, the exercise of understanding a law that may be foreign to that court? Um, also, the issue of, um, of, 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 of damages and what the approach is uh, of the court to the issue of damages. In some countries, damages can be huge. I have never met a European party who was willing to go to the U.S. if that party was going to be exposed to punitive damages. Uh, some countries are extraordinarily restrictive in um, the damages that they, that they would award. Um, and then, finally, the issue of... Um, of, of enforcement of contracts and uh, and whether the courts are willing to enforce contracts that have been that have been concluded between parties, um, where those contracts might um, be contrary to certain economic policies or uh, conceptions of the uh, of, of the country where the court is located. Uh, in international distribution contracts, for example, some countries, Belgium, France, Spain, have um, have laws that are extremely protective of the distributor. Um, will the courts then be willing to to enforce a contract that designates U.S. law or that affords no protection at all to the uh, distributor? All those are factors to be considered, too. I would add as as well to that, that just as the location of assets can be important for the enforcement of a judgment, the availability of parties and witnesses can be a very significant factor. If a parent company is in one jurisdiction and uh, a subsidiary is operating in a jurisdiction where you're sued and you need to have evidence brought in, I mentioned locking statutes, but similarly, compelling foreigners to attend in a different jurisdiction to give testimony, the availability of those processes vary widely from country to country. Sometimes there are language issues, which sounds like a simple issue, but can be a big one. I've seen multinational litigation, for example, where the panelists hearing the matter were the only ones who actually spoke the domestic language. And the use of translators, in particular in a jurisdiction where witness testimony is viva voce, given live, um, can be a, a real obstacle where, for example, witness credibility is at issue. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion, and that's all the time we have today. So I would like to thank our guests, Joe Sepulcher with Lederkirk & Co. and Carla Swansburg with Royal Bank of Canada. 
The Lex Monday website is open to all of our listeners with additional information on today's topic and with literally hundreds of resources for in-house counsel. You can find Lex Monday online at lexmonday.com, or you can also contact me, Tim Corcoran, at timothy.corcoran at thompsonreuters.com or at corcoranlawbizblog.com. Remember, you can check out all of our shows at legaltalknetwork.com, or you can also subscribe to this program in iTunes. Thanks for listening today to In-House Legal from Lex Mundy. I'm Tim Corcoran from Hubbard One, and I hope to talk with you again. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to In-House Legal from Lex Mundi. Join us again next time for more hot topics for the in-house lawyer on Legal Talk Network. <laughs>